0: Hi there, and welcome to Episode 7 of the Airflow Podcast, produced by Astronomer. In the first six episodes of this series, we've begun a deep investigation into Apache Airflow and have examined many sides of the project. Before we get started, I'd like to quickly mention that Astronomer recently released what we're calling Space Camp, an airflow training and education course designed for teams looking to run airflow at scale. Flexible enough for both small and large data engineering teams, SpaceCamp seeks to help realize the full potential of Airflow through the instruction of operational best practices and the aid and setup of production-grade Airflow clusters. We cater to the entire spectrum of users, from the complete novice looking to get started with Airflow to more experienced folks just looking to step up their game or help their team get up to speed. Feel free to shoot me an email at pete at astronomer.io if you'd like to see a sample curriculum. Okay, now back to this week's episode. We're really excited to continue our investigation this week with an exploration of the recent role-based access control work done for the project. This time, we met up with WePay engineer Joy Gao, who handled the bulk of the RBAC work that was released as part of the recent Airflow 1.10 update. For those that don't know, role-based access control is an approach to restricting system access to authorized users. It's long been a desired feature for Airflow users to limit access to specific parts of their instance, and Joy played a huge part in making that dream a reality for the community. Here she is talking about her background and what inspired her to do all this work. Hope you enjoy. Um, well, thanks for hopping on with us today. Right. We're really excited to chat, um, looking forward to this conversation for quite a while.
1: Uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited. Thanks for reaching out, too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, I guess we can just start with some intros from our side. Um, I'm Pete. I help run the Airflow podcast with Viraj. Um, I work at Astronomer. Uh, I work on the product team and do a little bit of sales engineering. Um, also, some uh, business development work as well. So, uh, wear a bunch of different hats. You know, it's the startup life, but um, really enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, awesome. Yeah, I'm Viraj. Um, I'm more on the... Uh,
2: data engineering site, just using Airflow mm-hmm. to help our customers. Um, also now apparently a uh, an, an amateur podcaster.
1: <laughs> <laughs> nice.
3: <laughs> and then Taylor, you want to introduce yourself? Oh yeah, I'm Taylor. I'm kind of one of our senior software engineers on the back end, so I'm um, whatever we need to work on for the Astronomer Cloud and the Astronomer Enterprise Edition. But mainly a lot of Airflow stuff. <laughs>
1: nice Here. nice of you guys mm-hmm.
0: awesome so do you mind just giving us a, a little bit of an introduction for yourself tell us a little bit about your background how did you end up at WePay?
1: um yeah so this kind of comes back to like how i even got started in computer science to begin with um so i went to school uh, in canada at university of waterloo and uh, even though it's kind of a a university that's known for its computer science program uh, in the Bay Area, I went to school for accounting. So I had an accounting uh, major. Um, And it's mostly because kind of my parents um, always sort of guided me that I should um, look for a job with stabilities and high securities and a pretty stable career. And I didn't have a whole lot of uh, opinions and I went with that. Then luckily for my first uh, internship, I didn't get into one of the big four accounting firms that I was interested in. Instead, I worked as a business analyst at a small uh, startup, uh, tech startup in Toronto. And for uh, that startup, I really got what it's like um, working uh, in a fast-paced environment, what it's like working with engineers, and what it's like um, to basically um, working in the t- tech industry in general. And I got really interested what the fellow software engineers at my company. Um, and I kind of wanted to learn how to code and get better. Um, I started learning how to code and basically build uh, build things instead of just you know auditing other people's work kind of uncertain about the whole decision. So it wasn't until uh, two and a half years later when I decided that I didn't want to be an accountant. So I switched major. I switched major twice, actually. Um, First, I switched into kind of this uh, joint program of both financial management and computer science. And then later on, complete full switch into computer science um, because I wanted to take some of the senior CS courses. that only CS majors had uh, had the opportunity to take. And how the transition was pretty hard at the beginning, but it was extremely rewarding. And I felt like I was actually enjoying my university years again. And then finally, um, when it comes to my final internship, I thought I really wanted to work in Silicon Valley. So uh, I uh, the Y Combinator website, and then I saw a list of the startups that I had there. And I basically applied to a and ended up getting a job with Sweepay. And my summer internship experience was really enjoyable. And then I decided to go back for full time. And I've been basically working there ever since.
0: Very nice. That's an awesome story. Um, really, really cool to hear about the switch <laughs> from accounting to computer science. I know um, if I could go back, I might have done something similar. I studied chemistry um, in college. But now that I'm working <laughs> in tech, it would be really nice to have a CS degree. Um, so what do you and currently I- do? I- I'm oh, sorry. Go go ahead.
1: Oh, I would say it's always nice to kind of have it, like a dual uh, a dual degree, or at least like knowing multiple um, disciplines. It really helps yeah. for most software engineers to to have a better understanding and a broader scope as well. So I definitely think it's good to 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 have that accounting knowledge or to have that chemistry knowledge as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Pete and I both went to a liberal
0: arts school, so we're very much on that train. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So wait, so how long how long have you been at WePay then?
1: Uh, I've been at the company for about two years. I started with working on the core payment team, and uh, within the past year, I switched into the data infrastructure team.
0: very cool. So so kind of how'd you end up getting your hands dirty with Airflow to start?
1: Um yeah, so, uh- so when I'm working um, at uh, WePay uh, on the data infrastructure team, uh, we use Airflow as one of our main toolings for our ETL pipelines and for our data warehousing uh, stuff. So because of this, um, uh, and because at the time, Airflow was pretty new to our company, and pretty new, it's a pretty new project to begin with, so I had to basically read a lot of documentations um, and kind of get my hands dirty into the source code to uh, to do, like, small bug fixes and whatnot to help with our production pipeline. Um, and I started, I think my first commit was actually uh, m- making a change to the readme, to make it a little bit huh, easier to read. Um, and then after that, I started working on small bug fixes in your flow and then Later on, I started to work on some of the command line features and adding operators and whatnot. Um, And then, yeah, finally, I got to work on the role-based access control, the RBAC stuff. Um, It's it's been kind of like gradual uh, and steady steady involvement with Airflow. And um, part of the reason uh, we had to do this for WePay is because we're a pretty small company. We're pretty small for data infrastructure structure and we couldn't really afford air flow and then building our custom feature on top our forked version um, because of how small we are and because of how fast the project is so what we had to do basically every time we need to make a change we contributed back to open source first get approved uh, get that merged and then we if we need the feature immediately we would cherry pick that feature into um, our uh, our version of Airflow, and then later on, when the next release happens, we'll basically um, use the latest release. So that's kind of how we um, uh, kind of forced me to uh, get more and more involved with the Airflow open source community.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, what have you been? Your what's your experience been like working with the Airflow open source community? Everyone we've talked to so far has uh, spoke pretty highly of it. Uh,
1: yeah, it's uh, it's. I think it's a really friendly environment. I do hear a lot of like horror stories about some of the other open source communities, um, but with Airflow, um, everyone has been very open and welcoming, uh, and kind. So it's it's been a pretty good and uh, it's, it's very active. And we get, get, I would say, maybe at least ten pull requests or so every single day. Maybe five to ten pull requests every single day. Uh, so it's constantly um, changing, which is pretty exciting for us.
0: Oh yeah, definitely very exciting. So, so we're we're really interested in hearing a little bit more about the RBAC stuff that you've been working on. I mean, it seems like such a cool, such a cool initiative and something that everybody um, seems to have a pretty immediate use for. So, what, what kind of inspired the work on that, and why now?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, this has to go back to kind of the nature of our company. Uh, where we pay, we're a fintech company, and um, we have a lot of requirements when it comes to legal supply, illegal compliances, and security. And we not there really isn't a whole lot of room for mistakes, um, because that could potentially put us out of business. Um, so I think our en- uh, engineers at our company tend to get a little bit more paranoid about security. In general, and I think that's more of a good thing, <laughs> because um, for anyone, if you have um, if you're an Airflow user and you get uh, access granted to the Airflow UI, um, you can do pretty much any administrative things with Airflow. So this basically means you can um, you know change the state of a DAG run or task instance, like uh, like marking something from fail to success, uh, without the job actually succeeding, um, you can start any job, you can trigger a job, get loop, um, just ad hoc. Um, and you can also modify um, some of the shared um, variables, sorry, sorry, some of the shared airflow like variables and connections. Um, and if you make a mistake there, that could potentially impact many jobs that depended on those um, shared objects. And then finally, there's a feature, uh, ad hoc query in Airflow, that um, if it's configured to read the metadata DB, you can essentially have the full access to the database. So there's a lot of things that we're not very comfortable with uh, with Airflow UI. So what we had to do at the start was we had to limit the Airflow UI to only a couple folks at our company. And for a lot of the DAG owners, what uh, it, it kind of sucks for them because uh, they basically had to rely on email alerts and on our downstream logging system to do any kind of uh, production debugging. Uh, they can test their DAGs locally; um, they can test it in our POC environment. But when it comes to production, it's pretty much a black box. And this kind of really defeats um, one of the main attractive um, feature of Airflow, was was it is its UI. And over time, um, we decided that we. Don't, if we want to continue to use Airflow, we want to expose the UI to um, everyone, uh, but at, at different degrees. So, if you're an Airflow uh, maintainer, and maybe all you need to do—sorry, uh, maybe you need to um, work mostly with connections and variables and just um, then, uh, making uh, setting, how do I say Making sure that it's um, um, up and running and whatnot. Then you should have the admin access. Uh, if you're a DAG owners and you don't really care as much about the, the uptime of airflow, on the other hand, you care more so about your specific DAGs, then you can have these read, write, and execute access to the DAG. And for everyone else who are more like spectators of airflow, they should have read-only access be allowed to make a modification, because granted, people make mistakes, right? So we, we want to add this level of um, granularity um, to access control for Airflow.
2: Yeah, um, I think a lot of what you hit on is definitely something that would extend the usability of Airflow to just more types of corporations and more teams. Uh, the UI, like you said, right now is definitely mm-hmm. a bit of a double-edged sword because uh, it's so it's so user friendly that it's almost uh, almost giving the user too much power.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: So is there any way, have you heard of any any ways that people have kind of gotten around the lack of um, role-based authentication until, you know, up up to this point with Airflow? Or have people just, has everybody been granted, you know, uh, high-level permissions?
1: Yeah, so from my kind of involvement in the community and talking to other Airflow users, uh, my um, impression is that most people, most users of Airflow, they just assume the best, uh, best intent of the engineers they're doing, and they should not make do anything that isn't, you know, that is dangerous or risky. For sure. Um,
0: yeah.
1: And Def-
0: uh, definitely a dangerous game. T- yep. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, definitely a dangerous game, especially if you're you're kind of just getting your feet wet with airflow and poking around in a production instance.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And, and I do have um, some of the few, a few companies that uh, said they had, they did something similar to us where they limited the UI access. Um, but I think for the most part, it was just, um, you know, you seem innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I think for maybe ever since I started working on RBAC, we've been getting a lot more positive feedbacks um, and kind of like advocating uh, for this feature. And actually, there's someone in the community that is working on a, an RBAC, which is on the DAG level. Um, we call it a DAG level access control, or DLAC. And what this basically enables them to do is to um, DAG uh, access specifically to users, um, as opposed to, um, sorry, specifically to, to roles, but on a DAG level, basically.
0: Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. That's exciting. So how'd you, can, yeah. can you talk a little bit uh, how you approached the project from a technical standpoint? So how did you actually go about implementing it?
1: Um, yeah, so we started off with an um, Airflow RBAC proposal. This was actually something written by another colleague of mine that worked security team at our company. Um, and then when it comes to actually the implementation, we got together as a community. We had this uh, really long um, mailing list thread that, taught, that discussed this. And uh, we had a couple options to decide between. So the the first option was we thought about uh, uh, switching from uh, Flask into Django. Um, because Django is the more mature framework, I think has like five years lead ahead of Flask. So there are more um, security related and role-based access control related features that are out of the box with its, its extensions. Uh, scratch that one because it's a lot of work um, just to, mig- to migrate the framework just for RBAC. Um, it didn't seem like it was worth it. And then the second option we consider was actually imp- implementing it from scratch, like to designing the data models, um, models and implementing them ourselves. The downside of this is that we know there are already a lot of existing solutions out there and us working on it um, seems like a, just a huge duplication of effort. So um, we also kind of went against it because um, Airflow's um, security model is actually pretty standard and it didn't seem like we need to really customize it uh, for our need. So we kind of scratched that one as well. And then we looked into some of the existing uh, libraries and Flask extensions. There were um, a couple of them. I think one was Flask RBAC and then another was Flask Principle. Both of them had one um, issue with our uh, our implementation, is that it requires you to hard-code the roles with the permissions. So the roles have to be and cannot be configured based on the business need. And that's not really ideal. So finally, um, we evaluated um, Flask App Builder uh, short for Arb, uh, sorry, short for Fab, and this is something that Maxime actually uh, suggested to begin with because he is using this, uh, pro- uh, he's using this he's using this extension for um, Apache Superset, which is another project that he worked on, um, and uh, they've have some proven success with it. And we evaluated we evaluated um, Flask App Builder, and uh, what So basically, it's very similar to Flask Admin, which is the current extension that we're using for the Airflow web server. Um, Both Flask Admin and Flask App Builder are inspired by Django, so they're kind of similar in nature. Um, They both use SQL Alchemy as their um, ORM layer, and they both have um, support for Bootstrap and Jinja templating um, and all that. uh, the migration work actually wasn't uh, as much. Uh, what makes uh, Flask App Builder um, kind of better than than Flask Admin for our use case is that it has our back out of the box. It has user session management out of the box. It has authentication backends um, out of the box. So it's a much more opinionated framework. And um, it fit really well with our needs. So we basically decided to... Um, migrate to Flask App Builder. Oh, um, yeah, and to talk about like the actual migration process, um, basically, um, because they both use SQL Alchemy as the underlying ORM layer, we didn't have to touch any of the model classes. The only thing we needed to change were the views. Um, so we had to change all the views such that they inherit from Flask App Builder's case view instead of Flask admins. View and also modify um, some of the attributes for each of those views. And then the next thing we had to do was basically tweak some of the HTML and, uh, and JavaScript component such that they will work with this, uh, with a Flask app builder framework. And then finally, um, which is what actually took most of the time for me um, was adding some of the missing features um, that are in Flask admin but are not in Flask App Builder. Um, so that we can reach feature parity between the old UI and the new UI, and these are things like um, um, oh yeah, so uh, so for example, in Flask admin, you can um, pre before submission, and that's something we needed to add to Flask App Builder. Um, also, uh, Flask App Builder didn't support uh, comp- didn't support composite primary keys, and it didn't support of data types and it didn't support custom data types um, for SQL Alchemy. So we had to add all of those support to App Builder. And then I ended up basically spending a lot of time making FAP work, uh, working with the new UI, sorry, working with Airflow. And that's how we kind of got the new.
2: Wow, yeah. That seems like <laughs> quite a rabbit hole to go down.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> a lot of different parts working there. <laughs> Um, so, okay. just kind of veering back to Airflow itself, um, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, lost my train of thought. Uh, just like veering back to Airflow itself, can you talk about some of the how you got started with the like some of the pain points you had when you were getting ramped up with the project? Uh, just mm-hmm. learning to write DAGs and building in the framework. Mm-hmm.
0: So are you still picking us up sorry oh uh, yeah okay sorry yeah. oh yeah we got you.
3: yeah i think i'm getting some lag or something
0: all right i think are we good now
3: uh, yeah good on my okay, okay cool sorry about that C- can you repeat the last question
1: yeah
2: uh, so kind of just veering back to the using airflow itself uh can you just talk about some mm-hmm. of the learning process uh getting your feet wet with like actually writing dags and how that process was for you
1: um yeah so i think the hard Hardest part was actually setting up the environment for <laughs> um, Because um, when I first started, Airflow was a fairly young project. So the, the, the setup part had some uh, bugs and issues. And that took kind of some time to get used to. Uh, there were some dependency conflicts. And from what I can remember, um, once you can have a UI that's running locally, and we basically recommend everyone who started using uh, Airflow to first try to play around with it in a local environment um, to create their first DAGs <laughs> and whatnot, <clears throat> and and the actual DAG building part is pretty, in my opinion. As long as you're familiar with um, Python, um, uh, it's it, it's have a, it has a pretty good documentation um, on uh, on Airflow as well. Uh, the other thing that I guess is a little bit unconventional to get used to was the way start date uh, works in Airflow, and I think many people are familiar with it or came across it, uh, got confused by it when it first started. Um, which is that um, Airflows is based on um, intervals rather than rather than pointing time. So the start, uh, so a job executes only when an interval ends from its start time, and rather than when the rather than when the, when the job started. So this caused a lot of confusions, but once you get the hang of it, it becomes pretty straightforward as well.
2: Very nice, yeah. Yeah, We uh, definitely the start date stuff and then catch up being true by default always kind of threw me off.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
3: Taylor, was there something that you wanted to ask? I, I just thought it was interesting. Uh, the point that Joy mentioned about getting Airflow set up and just running was the hardest part. Um, you know, at Astronomer, we've heard a lot of customers say that and we invested not to, like, plug the product too much or anything, but we really invested in our CLI being able to make it so, like, users can just download the CLI and then uh, just type astro airflow start or and, and then start. Um, and, like, all the Docker containers spin up and Docker Compose happens automatically and all this cool stuff for you. Uh, I'd just be curious to know what you guys used internally. Do you have some sort of like Docker Compose setup people run locally or do you just do like virtual environments or something like that?
1: Yeah, so uh, in terms of, of um, for developers just do learning airflow, we don't have a Docker environment for it yet. Um, we do have like basically a set of guidelines on how to set up your virtual end and how to how to run locally. Um, that's definitely something that I think we're going to um later on, Uh, as more people adopt Airflow, we do want to make the process as frictionless as possible.
3: And kind of on the same token, I don't know if you saw the news uh, this past week about, I think it was a contractor for one of the music companies had deployed an Airflow instance. And uh, long story short, they had their production instance up with dev settings. So like the web server was exposed by default, no authentication and all that. And then, you know, shortly after, there was some discussion on the Airflow mailing list around, should we make it um, production-ready out of the box, but, like, a little bit harder for a dev to start with locally? Should we do more, like, 12-factor, where there's um, dev settings and prod settings, and you just get both, and you pick? I'd just be curious to know if you have any more thoughts around that.
1: Um, I, so, <laughs> to be honest, I don't work as much. In on development and deployment process of Airflow, so I don't have a whole lot of experience or opinions about it, but uh, um, I definitely think it would be beneficial to, to not make the UI automatically. And it should be a way to um, to basically pre- prevent that to be, to begin with, because it seems kind of risky. Yeah,
3: I, I thought the I kind of want to double back to the point you mentioned on Django, so. Uh, Personally, I got started with Django in like 2014, and I had done some Flask stuff before that. So it was a lot of um, like what you said, you know, when you use Django and Flask side by side, um, Django is like so batteries included, right? Like the ORM is there out Mm -hmm. of the box, and the Django admin is like very full featured, and you can do all these things, you know, models, views, everything is built in. You don't need a bunch of packages like you do with Flask, but, you know, the flip side, well, if the Django admin doesn't work for you and you want to sub out a different admin, like, you don't really have alternatives to a lot of the stuff that comes out of the box. Whereas, you know, with, like, Flask, there's so many different extensions and plugins. And like you said, you guys went through this process of trying a whole bunch of different alternatives to arrive at the RBAC. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess I'd just be curious to hear a little bit more about uh, what the Django discussion looked like and, and how far you went down that path. I never really thought about... Um, using Airflow and Django itself but what I have seen at a higher level is like a few years in the Django community you just see and obviously uh, Django's been around for a few years so like it's more mature the docs are like very polished there's tutorials for everything there's talks at conferences every year and I think I'm seeing like the same thing happen in Airflow that happened in Django it's just we're like five years after because you know Airflow is still relatively young um, mm-hmm. I'd just be curious if, if you had seen or what your thoughts are on like the broader movement of the community. If you think we're doing something like that, if Airflow is the next big Python framework like Django is, or maybe I'm like reading into it a little too much. I know it was kind of an open-ended question, but does that make sense? So I
1: think like a potential movement to Django. Um, I think unless there is a strong... Reason to do so, it doesn't. Um, we we are not going to, to modify right away because I mean the reason that we kind of went against uh, migrating to Django was because the only thing we wanted out of it at the time was our back, and to migrate the entire framework there are we're going to have to deal with new issues and new bugs and uh, and for a project like um, Airflow I think it's um, it. And given how fast it was growing at the time, um, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to switch framework entirely just for a feature. Um, Especially that's going to take some time. And then uh, all the existing features are going to be um, added to Flask while we are angle, for example. Then when we're trying to merge it back, there's going to be new conflict. And it's unless there's a really strong reason, I guess, then I don't see airflow moving towards the Django direction, <laughs> and I think Flask has its benefits as well, um, because it's a very light uh, lightweight framework. it allow us give us more flexibilities um, to building features that we care about. From that perspective, um, we didn't we haven't came across with any like major performances issues or anything with Flask. So yeah.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's important. That, that's a good point you bring up. Is like. It's a lot easier to get started with Flask. You don't have that big upfront learning curve like you have with Django. So maybe there is a better approach for, you know, a big community driven open source project like this. Definitely. I- so, Joy,
0: I know I know we're kind of reaching the end of our time slot here, and I don't I don't want to um, go over it all, but I have one more question for you that I'd love to kind of hear your perspective about. Um, we've interviewed a ton of people for this podcast, kind of dating all the way back to you know August or September or whenever we got it started, and you're actually the first woman we've talked to, um, which you know could be a, more of a testament to the larger tech space in general than it is just to the Airflow project. But I'm just wondering if you think there's anything that the open source community could do to better support female devs.
1: Um, yeah, so I remember, like, a couple of years ago, I think, uh, I read this study um, about open-source and um, gender discrimination. They basically did a study that um, if your gender is hidden while you're making an open-source contribution, your pull request, um, female, on average, has a slightly higher merge rate than male, um, maybe, like, by 5%. It wasn't anything, like, too obvious. Um but um, if your gender is visible for your, um, uh, as, as, then women, uh, the, for those women, the average um, merge rate is lower than male. Um, also not by a whole lot, but uh, still this study kind of just got me aware about the gender issue on the whole uh, with open source. I first started um, uh, making contributions to airflow I intentionally created a, a new account. Um, I had an old GitHub account, Joy Gal, uh, and then I create a new account, J Gal fifty uh, four, which basically hide away my name, which hide away my gender, and then I changed my profile picture as well to like a gender neutral, um, and that kind of got me feeling a little bit more brave about you know contributing to open source. Um, of course, like that's not something that um, I advocate women should hide our gender just to get our foot in the door. The fact that I, I felt the need to do it is kind of, um, I think is kind of a sign that there um, is somewhat of a gender issue um, with open source and just in general in the tech industry. Um, I think as a, as a committer and as a moderator for an open source project, um, it's much more about, you know, contributing like code to the project. Um, A lot of it um, is about a really safe environment um, for people to make contributions to grow the community. This means that if someone is, you know, harassing another person or it's just being, having bad behaviors um, uh, in an issue, in a discussion, then it's important for us as committers to call it out and tell them that it's not okay to do that. Similarly, um, if some when people create pull requests, uh, we want to um, give them the credits and give them um, give them like like thank them basically for them feel more welcome. And on the other hand, if they're creating a pull request that isn't quite up to par, isn't quite what we wanted, rather than ignoring it or just you know dismissing it. What we can do is tell them what needs to be changed in order for this pull request to be merged and just providing constructive feedback on the whole. So I think that would help as well. And finally, um, for open source project, I think it's really important to have um, very clear guidelines for newcomers and contributors to tell them how they can contribute to this project. Um, Just have it written uh, written as a readme um, in in the repository itself. So it's uh, easy to find and easy to easy for people to contribute, and yeah, I think I think um, when it comes to female in open source and female in tech specifically, it's a much deeper problem. Um, I think it's a top of the funnel problem because we just don't know um, uh, studying computer science and um, applying to CS jobs, and obviously it's not fair for um, the company right now to require. Uh, 50% of the engineers to be female, when only maybe 30% of our um, resumes uh, are coming from um, females. But I think um, I'm seeing a lot of changes personally uh, now with um, with kind of like this whole movement towards gender, equ- gender equality. And I think um, it's going to get better over time. And it's a slow process um, and it's going to be somewhat of a struggle, but I think we're, in the right path to get there.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that you brought up kind of the top of the funnel point Taylor and I were actually just talking about that last week. Um, just how kind of Mm -hmm. university educations, um, systematically, you know, whether, you know, like not, not necessarily, um, purposefully, but systematically can sometimes, uh, discourage women from pursuing, you know, more technical paths. Uh, I definitely felt that in my undergraduate institution and, um, it's definitely definitely seen, but but glad to glad to know that you think it's getting better and um, looking forward to that.
1: Yes, thank you.
0: Tell are you? Yeah, I thought oh, it was.
3: Oh uh, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting that she mentioned that it's a top of the funnel problem. I, I think, like you said, that's something we all kind of agree on. And obviously, there's a lot of discussion around that in tech right now. But um, another thing I've heard recently is like, yes, it's a top of the funnel problem, but we need more female role models out there. And it's kind of interesting just to hear uh, Joy talk through her path of like, okay, when I was contributing, I started by like fixing things in the readme, And then I did like small bugs and then I fixed tests and then I did operators. And then next thing you know, she's working on the hardest parts of like core airflow. So I, I think to some degree, just having that out there and other people can see that in the community, I think that helps as well. So if the next, um, female dev that has not contributed to airflow comes along and she says oh look one of the core contributors is female and look she's already done all of these impressive things it's like oh okay it won't be too hard for me to get there too i don't know it's just a thought but i think that it helps oh definitely
1: i i, I took actually yeah and that's kind of part of the reason why i changed back my profile picture um with like an actual photo of myself because i think that would actually encourage more um, female engineers to also contribute, knowing that there's um, not just male committers and male working on airflow um, and on open source in general.
0: Thanks to Joy for coming on, and thanks to her for all of her hard work on the project. It's much appreciated by everybody involved. Thanks for tuning in this week, and as always, feel free to reach out to me at Pete at astronomer.io with any podcast feedback or if you'd like to be considered for an interview.